We are now gonna get into our series from murderer to missionary. So prepare your hearts, get your notebooks and pens ready, and let's get ready to hear a word from God this morning. Everyone, my name is Pastor Andrew. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I haven't been here in a couple months to preach, and a couple of things have happened in my life that are a pretty big deal. The first and biggest being, I am now a father. Me and my wife, we had our son. He's, uh, he's kicking around here somewhere, but if you haven't seen him, I should have a photo uh, somewhere that we can look at, potentially. There he is. So there is Theo. Um, that's my son, Theo. Uh, I bragged that the last time I was here preached that we were going to name him Theophilus, and sure enough, we did. So that's little Theo. He's been just amazing and wonderful, and it's been so mind-blowing to be just part of, you know, creating a new life and, and having just a, an amazing baby. And uh, we had our first rough day with him uh, Friday. So... Friday, he decided that he was going to be awake from 4 a.m. till 6 p.m., all right? A whole day for an infant. And so it was definitely trying, but it was our first rough day. But other than that, he's been like a little angel, and he's awesome and wonderful. And so you can see him. My wife's around here somewhere, so be sure to say hi and check him out, because he's awesome. And not bragging, but he's pretty cute. So... So that's pretty much the biggest thing that's happened in our life, and, and this week I'm here with you preaching today because Pastor Nate and Jeremy are on their way to a conference that I will be joining them at tomorrow, and so they have the joy of taking a road trip with their children, and I get to preach. So one of us is clearly a winner today, and I think it would be me. Uh, but, but, but they're going to a conference, and so they, they, Pastor Jeremy asked me to help kick off this series uh, here in Dover, and we're talking about Paul and the idea of murderer to missionary. What does it mean to do that? And Paul, I, I think for those of you who are new to church, you might not realize how important of a figure he is when you read your Bible. The, the Bible split into two portions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has to do mostly with the Jewish people. And then the New Testament is the life of Jesus and everything that it means now that Jesus has come. Well, Paul is responsible for writing 13 to 14, depending on how you feel about the book of Hebrews, books of the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there's 27 books total. And Paul wrote 14 of them. 
So we can't undervalue how much of a drastic impact Paul is making in in our understanding of theology and our understanding of what it means to serve Christ in this life. And so as we jump into this, I've got to give us kind of a framework to understand a little bit of who Paul was. Because when we understand his character and who he was, we begin to realize that his theology was derived directly from his lived experience. And so he, you know, there's, there's portions of the Bible where we can piece together the things that he did, whether it's the book of Acts or, or some of the letters that he wrote to churches. We can begin to understand who he was. But I want to give you a little bit of an understanding of some of the things about him. And this is super condensed. I'm telling you, like, Paul's life is such a beast to understand. I'm currently going through a book called Paul by N.T. Wright, and I'm listening to the audiobook version of it. And it's over 16 hours long, and it's just talking about Paul in a historical context. This isn't even talking about the books of the Bible that he really wrote. It's just, who was Paul and what did he do? I have books that could be used as weapons based on 16 chapters of the Bible that he wrote. Like, there is deep, deep theological richness in understanding who he was. And so every year we like to focus on a biblical character so that we can begin to understand what does it mean to follow Christ or to follow God through the life of some of these individuals. And Paul is just a great example. If you Google most influential people of all time, Paul will show up as number six on the list. He's, he's made that much of an impact in the world and in our life without us even realizing it. And so a, little, a couple things about Paul that you need to know is he was a Roman citizen, so he was born in Rome. He was probably born around the same time as Jesus from anywhere from 5 BC to 5 AD. He was born then. He was a Jewish man. He wasn't born in Israel, though. He was born in the city of Tarsus, and that was about 600 miles away from Jerusalem. So he was born over 600 miles away from Jerusalem, but he grew up a very faithful and devout Jewish man. And it's like, you know, you, you begin to wonder what his life must have been like. He, he spent a portion of his life in Jerusalem learning about uh, the Bible and learning teachings and stuff like that. But he also lived in Tarsus, so he would go there and, and he was a tent maker, so he worked with his hands. And, and you almost can get this beautiful image of him sitting there and working in his shop and talking to people who didn't believe like he believed, who didn't understand the Bible the way he understood the Bible, who didn't quite know what God is, and him having conversations long before he was a Christian of trying to wrestle out and understand what does it mean to follow God. And Paul kind of, he got it twisted at some point in his life. He got it messed up. And so today, we're going to kind of look at his life and look at what he did, and we're going to apply it to ourselves, and we're going to look at ourselves in one of two categories the category of the self-righteous or the category of the self-loathing, which those are big, like strong, powerful words, but we're gonna wrestle through some important and powerful topics as we talk about what does it mean to be self-righteous and what does it mean to be self-loathing? So one of the ways I think about this is one of the phrases you might hear at some point in your life is, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? When people invoke that idea, they're, they're invoking a pedigree or, or they're invoking a power or, or a prestige that comes with who they are. 
To kind of give you an understanding of who Paul was, he was probably a person who would have said, do you know who I am? He wielded tremendous power and influence among the culture he was a part of. He could, he could get people killed if they did the wrong thing. He was that important and powerful. And so I want us maybe to give a little bit of a more modern context to understand this, of what it was like maybe interacting with Paul and, and how people would potentially feel when he would come to town and knock on your door and drag you out of your church and, and accuse you of things. So uh, my aunt did a year abroad in, in England when she was studying, when she was studying in college and, and, and getting her degree. And so she did a year abroad in England, and one of the things she did was she was really smart and she set up her schedule so she had classes on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then that way she would have Thursday through Sunday off. And she bought for, I think it was like $200, she bought a train ticket that would let her travel anywhere in Europe for free for the entire duration of her stay. I think it was about nine months. And so she would literally, she'd get done with classes on Wednesday, she'd hop on a train, and then they'd, she'd take it and go spend the week in Italy. Like that was her experience, and it was really cool. And one of the things was, this was before the fall of the Soviet Union in 19, I think it was 1990. So this was before the fall of the Soviet Union, and you, it was right at that point where they were beginning to let Westerners travel in to the Soviet Union to tour around. And so she decided one day that they were going to travel into the Soviet Union, her and her friend, they were gonna go for a trip into the Soviet Union. And so they get on the train, they go in, there's these big, terrifying, scary people who would come and they would stand over you and they would say, are you bringing in anything illegal? Are you bringing in this? Are you bringing in this? Are you bringing in food? Are you bringing in, and they would, they would kind of interrogate you and she was like, it was the most terrifying thing. You can imagine, you just sit there and be like, nope, nope, nope. And she was terrified in this experience. Well, they get into the Soviet Union and everything's going all right. And so they're traveling around and seeing the sights and they meet these two guys and they start talking to them. These guys were really fluent in English and so they talk and the guys eventually asked them out to dinner. They said, hey, we're having a dinner at uh, my father's house later this evening. Would you like to come? And they were like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. We'll go to this big dinner party and, and it was this big event that was going on. And, and what they didn't realize was this was the son of one of the highest ranking military generals in all of the Soviet Union. So the guys give them a time to meet up with them. And so they meet up at a certain location and they go and they get on a train, they ride it to somewhere and then they get off the train. And this is where it gets terrifying. They are ushered into the back of a car and hoods are put over their head. And they're taken on an hour-long drive with hoods over their head to the residence of one of this military generals. And they got there, and sure enough, like they're horrified at this point. They get there, and the hoods are taken off, and they have the dinner party, and then as soon as they can, they leave. And they're put back with the hoods on their head and driven home. She said it was the single most terrifying moment of her life. I want you to understand, this is what it was like interacting with Paul. He was the single, one of the single most terrifying people you could ever meet as a Christian. Why? Because he had a pedigree that made him 
so important he had influence over your life. If you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter three, verses four through seven, we see this. This is where Paul puts his pedigree. Why do you have to wear a hood when you come see me? Because I am the general in this country. Why do you go in an unmarked vehicle? Because I am the general. Don't you know who I am? This is Paul boasting about the pedigree he had that he used to convict Christians of crimes and even get them killed. He says in Philippians 3, verse 4, it says this, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could, indeed, if others have a reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church and and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Don't you know who I am? Look at my pedigree. Look how important I am. Look at this. But then this is where Paul shifts it and twists it and changes everything. Once I thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. There's a word in Christian tradition or in the church that you may have heard if you've been around here a while, and it's this. It's my road to Damascus moment. My road to Damascus moment. What does that mean? See, Paul zealously persecuted and chased after the church in everything that he did until on the road to Damascus, he encountered Jesus in a powerful way. And it's described as this. When you have a sudden or radical insight that changes your beliefs forever. Paul begins to say, look at my pedigree. Look what I have. And here is the trap that we fall into as individuals. And this is where we begin to see ourselves as potentially the self-righteous. We begin to list the things we're proud of as a justification for why we are a good Christian. So what we begin to do and what we begin to say is, I am okay, I am good in the sight of God because I've gone to church my whole life. Because I give X amount of dollars, God and I are in good standing. I don't need to go to church every week because, you know, me and God, we have an understanding. And we say, I'm a good person. I've done good things. I'm not a jerk. I'm not bad. I'm okay. There's nothing that needs to transform or change in my heart. And that's exactly what Paul was saying. He listed off of these things because there were other individuals who were saying, look how great I am. Look how I am. He's like, look, I have more reason to boast than anyone. And then he lays this out. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. And this is what I want you to begin to understand. And this, this final line, um, if we can put it back up, uh, I, I, everything that Christ has done. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Here's what I want you to begin to understand. This is the trap you can fall into as you begin to serve God for longer and longer. You think that because of the things you do, you have less of a need for Christ. And what Paul is saying, look, everything that made me worthwhile in my old life, I consider it worthless. It's nothing, it's falling apart. Man, when when I look at Christ compared to my works, it's nothing. 
I have nothing to offer him. And so for us as individuals, as we begin to process through, man, which camp do I fall into? You have to start to think to yourself and, and honestly hold up a mirror. God, is there anything in me that I think earns me a right or an authority that I shouldn't have? And it could be, it could be a multitude of things. You could, it could be your faithfulness to the church. It could be you thinking that you're a good person. It could be you know, how much money you give on a Sunday. It could be how often and how hard you work for the church. It could be how good of a parent you are. It could be any multitude of things. But what, what, what Paul is saying is, look, I fell into a trap of thinking that by being good enough, I was earning my right to have authority. I was earning my right to do what I wanted. And the scary part is, and for some of us, the very things that we're doing for good, the very things that Christ is setting up in us and changing in our lives can sometimes be the very things that begin to pull us away from God. Man, you, look how different I am. I, I, I'm, I'm in church for the first time in my life. Oh, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm overcoming sins for the first time in my life. Man, as that stretches out, as you do it longer, it can become the very thing that pulls you away from God. And the God who set up the good things, the things that you should be proud of, the transformation, the, 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 the love, the passion, that's the very thing that can begin to separate you from God. And so for those of us, as we fall into that mentality of being self-righteous, we have to think to ourselves, God, I don't ever want to be at a place where my pedigree outshines the things you've already done for me. And so we want to transform and refix and refocus and say, God, no matter how much I do, no matter how much I have to brag about, no matter how many good things are, are coming my way, God, for your glory first and foremost, I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. The next thing that we get into, and this is where we find another group of individuals, and these would be the people who might fall into the category of self-loathing. And so if the first group, it's, man, your past doesn't qualify you, the second group would be your past doesn't disqualify you from what God wants to do. And so we're gonna read uh, some of the things that Paul did in, in, in the book of Acts. And so this is, this is where he lays out, God, this is, this is how wrong I got your word. This is how wrong I was when it came to understanding what it was you called me to do. It says in Acts 26, 9, it says this, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus, I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Now, get to your feet, for I have appeared to you. Oh, this, so this is... This is, um, so then, this is all the things he did, and then this is his moment where he's interacting with Jesus. So Paul does this, it says, now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you, oh, I have appeared to you, appoint you as my servant and witness, tell people that you've seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. Then it goes on, 
and I, will, and I will rescue you from both the people, from your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles. And then finally, in verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by, by faith in me. So understand this. There's two conflicting things happening right here. Paul is freely admitting that he was responsible for the deaths of individuals. He was saying, I hated God so much. I hated Jesus so much. I would go to other cities. I would track them down. I would go to the synagogue. I would go to their church. I would drag them out into the streets, get them sent to prison. And when it came to a vote on whether they lived or died, I chose their death. And two verses later, Christ says, I'm appointing you to speak my message. How bizarre a moment for Paul. Imagine sitting there and you're like, I am responsible for killing these people and you now want me to go preach to them. Who in their right mind would ever let me come be a part of them? Who in their right mind would ever let me come to their church? Who in their right mind is ever gonna trust me? God, I can't do this. Everything I've done, there's no hope for me. Paul's in this mindset. And so one of the ways uh, that I thought about this is uh, for, for us today, one of the things I want you to begin to understand is no matter what you've done, God has more for you to do. It's not over. The, your past doesn't end what it is God's called you. It's got, you've got more ahead of you than your past could ever cover up. And just like Paul, who had to wrestle through, God, how do, I, how do I go talk to these people who I've hurt, who I've damaged, who I've, who I've broken? You face that same challenge in everything that you do. Man, you, some of you, some of us, like, you have family members you've wounded deeply. You have ex-wives, ex-husbands, you have broken relationships with children, you have damaged friendships, you have broken relationships with parents, and you are now responsible for presenting the message of the gospel to them. And in your mind, there's that way of, God, I don't know what I'm gonna do. You don't understand what I've done, who I was, what, what it is, and this is what, don't give up. God's called you to keep running the race. And so I'm not a very sports-inclined person. I don't watch a lot of sports, but every four years, I watch the Olympics. That's the one time I geek out on sports. Like, I will watch as many Olympic events as I can. I don't care what it is. It could be, you know, it could be table tennis. It could be, like, I even love watching the dressage, which is when the horses dance to music. Like, I love the Olympics. And one of the stories that my wife and I were watching recently was the story of the woman who won the women's triathlon. So the women's triathlon is a 1.5 kilometer uh, swim, followed by a 40 kilometer bike ride, followed by a 10 kilometer run. And so they do this all back to back. And the woman who ended up winning, her name was Flora Duffy, and she received the gold medal, and she is from Bermuda. 
The population of Bermuda is about 65,000 people. And she was from there. They have never won a gold medal in the entire history of the Olympics. The only other time anyone has medaled was they had a boxer back in the 80s who managed to get a medal. And she ended up winning the gold medal. And this is, what, this is one of the things that I found so fascinating about her as an individual. In 2008, she competed in the Olympics and failed to complete the triathlon at all. And she quit the sport for over a year. So here she was, 2008, she's made it to the Olympics, didn't even complete the race and quit for over a year. She decided to come back and this is what she said about winning. She says, it feels incredible. I mean, of course, it makes all the injuries, hard times, and tears completely worth it. Here's what I want you to begin to understand. Some of you want to quit the race right before God is ready to transform it for his good. Some of us want to quit the race right before God is ready to take the pains and the hurts and the injuries and turn them into something more than we can ever imagine. And the two things she talked about feeling was external pressure, the weight of an entire nation on her shoulders. Man, Bermuda, they, they're like, they don't have a lot of sports people to be proud of. There's only 65,000 of them. She says, everyone knows who she is when she goes home. Everybody knows about her. And they see how well she's doing. The weight of an entire nation is on her shoulder. And then she talks about the internal pressure. The, I don't know if I can do this. The internal pressure that causes her to collapse to say, I'm not good enough. I can't even finish the triathlon. There's no hope for me to continue running. There's no hope for me to continue in this sport. If I can't even finish, why should I keep going? And those are the two pressures that we face when we deal with this idea of self-loathing and this idea of being broken is we face external pressure, which causes us to posture. If people see who I really am, if they know about what I've done, if they know about my past or, or where I'm at or the things I get angry about, man, then I'll be compromised. I'm not worth bringing the gospel. Or there's the internal one. God, you could never use me. Why would you ever do this? Why, I can't overcome depression. I can't beat my anxiety. I can't talk to people. I can't, I can't do it, God. I'm, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm broken. And, and what Paul is saying here is, it's, like, it's not about your past. It's not about what you've done. But instead, it's what God has called you to do. Don't find your identity in who you were, but instead in who God says you are. And so in this moment, Paul is, Paul is calling us, like, by the end of the race, I want you to understand, Paul had spent over five and a half years, probably closer to six years in prison. He'd been beaten, he'd been hurt, he'd been, he, everything had gone wrong in his life, but this is what he realized was, God, you're going to take this pain and turn it to your good. And this is where one of the scriptures that, that, that I love is, is God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to to his purpose for them. Here's what this verse doesn't say. When you follow God, everything is gonna be great. What it says is everything will be worked for the good of those who, this is the condition of this promise, called according to their, his purpose 
for them. That pain, that suffering, that loss, man, it will only make sense when you begin to operate in the will of God. So if your past doesn't qualify you and your past doesn't disqualify you, what does your past do? Well, your past prepares you. And the band's gonna come up and we're gonna conclude. And this is where I wanna read Acts 22. Paul's about to be, to give you a little bit of context for what's going on here, Paul's about to be potentially killed by, uh, by a bunch of Jewish people. They're mad, they're angry, they've heard the things he's saying. There's a whole mob, there's a whole crowd, and they're all there, frothing in the mouth. They think Paul is this rebel who, who came from Egypt, who's trying to stir up problems, who's, who, who's blaspheming against God, who's doing all these things. And so this crowd is whipped into a froth. They're angry, they're mad. And then Paul begins to speak to him, and this is what it says in Acts 22. It says, when they heard him speaking their own language, Aramaic, the silence was even greater. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus, in a city of Sicilia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. And as a student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like a lot of you today. Here's what's so beautiful about this moment. Paul's talking to the very people he used to be. In that crowd, he looked out and he didn't see a bunch of people he was terrified of. He didn't see a bunch of people he was angry at. He didn't see a bunch of people he wanted to rain hellfire down on. He looked out into the crowd and he saw himself. He looked out and said, I was one of you. And then Jesus changed everything. What does your past do? It prepares you. There are people who need to hear the message of God and you are the only one who can look at them and instead of seeing a bum, instead of seeing a jerk, instead of seeing a broken person, instead of seeing depression, you see yourself and have compassion on them and have mercy for them. God, why did I have to go through this? God, why is depression still a problem in my life? God, why is anxiety still a problem in my life? God, why is alcoholism a problem in my life? God, why is drug use a problem in my life? God, why is anger a problem in my life? I feel ill-equipped. I was supposed to be better. Here's the thing. All things work to the good of those are called according to his purpose. You have a trial to overcome. You have an injury to push past. You have a wound that you have to go. And here's what God is promising you. You may not understand it. You may not get it. But at the end of the race, when you get to heaven, when I give you the gold medal, when I put a crown on your head, it will make every injury worth it. It'll make every pain worthwhile. It'll transform you fully and completely. And you will see the good that came from the pain. God has
has more for you. This is not the end of your story. It's the beginning. And for those of us here saying, God, I've been self-righteous, I've been overzealous, I've been this, there's hope for you. For those of us who say, God, I'm disqualified, I'm too broken, I'm too messed up, there's hope for you. Why? Because there was hope for Paul. And he's way, way worse off than any of us ever are. Blood on his hands, people broken, families torn apart at his request. And God used him to change the world. We wouldn't be here today if it weren't for Paul. Imagine if he gave up before he ran the race. Imagine if he gave up before he preached the gospel. I hope for every one of you in here, you think, God, what'll happen if I give up before I run the race? I don't wanna find out, so I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna chase after you. I'm gonna be transformed by you. And I'm gonna believe in the midst of the pain, God, all things will come together for the good of those called according to your purpose. Bow your heads with me. God, I pray for everyone in here that they continue to run the race, that they don't give up, that they realize you called them into something greater, that their past doesn't, uh, doesn't disqualify them, it doesn't qualify them, but it prepares them. God, lay in their hearts burdens for people, for individuals, for countries, for a mission that is bigger than they deserve, that is beyond their qualifications, that makes them think, God, I don't know if I'm the right person. But you remind us, you have called us and we wanna walk in according to your purpose. And when we do that, God, there's no stopping you. You can take a murderer and turn him into the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. If you can do that with Paul, what can you do with me? God, we let you begin to fill us up transform our hearts and change us for all time. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand to our feet and worship together.